Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here to sing alongside of you. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm the children and family pastor here. Pastor Mike is on vacation, and it's my pleasure to be preaching this morning. I don't know about you, but I am not really sure why we don't sing Christmas songs all year. It seems like that should just be happening all of the time. At the very least, September 1st, everyone knows, is the official beginning of Christmas season. We should at least start then, and that way we can really get our fill. Uh, really, um, O Come All Ye Faithful is probably my favorite Christmas song, one of the ones that we sung this morning. The chorus gets me every time. Uh, who talks like that? O Come Let Us Adore Him. Like, I... It seems like such a great thing to say. Let's come and adore our Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope we'll do that this morning. We are going to be in Mark chapter 2. And so if you want to turn there, it's always good to be in the Gospels to see what Jesus is up to there. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And so once you get there, if you want to stand up, we'll uh, read God's Word together. Here we go. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Father, we love your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to reveal yourself, to make us more like you. I pray that it would do that this morning. We would honor you and worship you by hearing your word. I pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Mark is one of my favorite gospels. All of the gospels are great, but Mark is interesting because I, I love the pace of Mark. It's very fast-paced. Matthew has a lot of extra explanation. You get a lot of extra conversation in Matthew, but Mark is down to business. They're, you're constantly moving from scene to scene. And Mark, if you're ever going to make a movie about the gospels, you should choose Mark because it's very action-oriented. And it starts off very quickly, catching us up to where we are in chapter 2. In Mark 1, we saw John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, and Jesus begins his public ministry about the middle of the chapter. He comes preaching the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He calls a couple of disciples, and he begins immediately casting out demons 
and healing people of their diseases, as well as preaching. And he very, very quickly becomes rather famous throughout the region surrounding the Sea of Galilee. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 28, we have basically that exact statement. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. He's healing, he's casting out demons, and people are so impressed by this. They've never seen anything like it, combined with the fact that he preaches with authority, and they just, it blows their mind. They can't believe it, and he quickly becomes a local phenomenon. He is a big deal. This is like American Idol, except the first season, back when the one mean guy was still on the show. Everyone is paying attention. And Jesus is very careful himself. He does not want to get caught up with the fact that everyone is so concerned to be healed. He is happy to heal people. He's happy to care for people's needs. But in verse 38 of chapter 1, he says, Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus' primary ministry is the proclamation of the gospel. And yet his fame continues to spread. He cleanses a leper at the end of chapter 1. In the last verse of chapter 1, he went out. Uh, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. He couldn't even go into the city anymore. There were so many people who wanted to see him, it would stop traffic. And so he had to go out into the wilderness where all of these people are still coming to him. And presumably he's continuing to heal and to cast out demons and to preach. And that's how we get to the beginning of chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, he's coming back to the city. I was inspired to get cute with my outline today, and so I, I, I like to read, I like fiction books, and so this is a nice story, and so I, I'm gonna, my, my outline is along the lines of a story. I'm going to have four different chapters to this, and what's interesting about chapter two is it's the beginning of a new story. Chapter one was all about Jesus' rise to fame, about the beginning of his ministry, but chapter two starts a very different theme and one that is very common throughout the Gospels, and that is Jesus' conflict with religious authorities. What we're reading today is the first of five accounts that go all in a row that chronicle the problems that various religious authorities had with Jesus and his ministry. And so we're going to get four chapters of Jesus' first conflict with religious leaders. And the point of this, Jesus tells us exactly what the point is. It's really easy. So that you would know that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And so verses 1 and 2 bring us to chapter 1, an unexpected party. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and there were many gathered, so that there was, not, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Jesus comes back into the city, and word gets out immediately. Capernaum is sort of a, a, a seaside town right next to the Sea of Galilee. He would, that, that was kind of a base of operation. He was in Capernaum very frequently. In all likelihood, he would have been at Peter's house. That's sort of where they set up shop. 
So he's there, and everyone find out, finds out that he's there, and they don't wait for invitations. They just start showing up. People are knocking at the door, people inviting themselves in, and people are just coming in and coming in and coming in until it gets to be very, very crowded. I don't know if you've been any place that was very, very crowded, a concert or something like that. It's a little uncomfortable to have so many people there. I don't know if you've ever been to a particularly crowded sermon, but that's really interesting. Our, our anchor group, our college career group, uh, used to go to a conference. The conference doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Resolved. And Resolved was a number of really good preachers, and there was about, I mean, I, I don't even remember, a thousand, two thousand people there. There's a lot of people. And they had the absolute worst way imaginable to let people into the worship center. It was actually at a conference center. But there would just be literally hundreds of people lining up ahead of time, all in like the lobby of some large building. It's just sweltering hot. You're just sweating. There's so many people. And the longer time goes, you get there and you're kind of like spread out and you're playing cards if you get there like two hours early. But eventually everyone's just packed in there. And eventually they open like two doors to let in hundreds, the hundreds of people who are there early. And there are literally people sprinting in to get seats. Just, just through these small doors. I'm amazed someone wasn't trampled to death, which would be quite the headline, don't you think? You know, seven college students trampled to death by people trying to get good seats at a sermon. Um, like that would be, it doesn't seem quite the right thing, but there's people running. People are yelling at them. The staff of the, of the conference are telling them, don't run, don't run. People are hopping over, you know, chairs and tables and they're getting in there and they're packed. There are so many people there. Now you have, I don't know, a thousand people in this place and it's hot. And the band's playing and the sermon's going and I don't know, it's great at that point. But it is, it is an experience to be, to be just squeezed in there. I go to another conference called Shepherd's Conference. That's for like adults. And they also sprint to the front, which is a crack up to see like a 60-year-old dude just boo down to the beginning. But sometimes they get excited to hear and they're coming and my guess is they expected a show. They expected healings and demons to be cast out and to Je- for Jesus to do something amazing. But Jesus... It's important to him that he be preaching the gospel. And so that's what he's doing. And they're packed into this house. And there he is teaching. You can read statistics about, you know, how, how uh, room dynamics and how full a room should be for people to feel comfortable. If it's too empty, it kind of feels empty and people are uncomfortable. But if it's too full, right, you, wanna, you want a little bit of elbow room. Have you ever sat in a row and someone comes and sits like right next to you and you're like, Dude, seriously, like the whole row is available. Can you just give me a little bit of room? But they're packed in here, every single seat. They're in the aisle, they're on the stage, they're in the lobby. You got people sitting in the soffits, dangling their feet over the edge. I've always wanted to do that, haven't you? Like sit up there, that would be amazing. But you got people everywhere and they're just packed in and they're listening to him preach. They weren't invited, but Jesus is, is taking advantage of the situation. And that leads us to chapter 2, which encompasses verses 3 through 5. Chapter 2, best seat in the house. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Paralytic, it's kind of a strange word. It, it, it just means someone who's paralyzed. I can't remember ever actually calling someone in real life a paralytic. But, but that's, that's all we mean. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. We know he can't walk because he's being carried. And there are four 
friends carrying him. Actually, we don't even know that they're friends. They're just men. They seem friendly. I don't know if they didn't like him. I don't know why they're carrying him. But they could have been family. It's possible he could have hired them, but he probably didn't have the money for that. But they, they could have been anyone. We're not really told. Who knows? Maybe they're space pirates. I don't know. But they're carrying him. His bed would have consisted of basically a, a sack filled with straw. It's not a very nice mattress, but they're carrying him to go see Jesus. I've played a number of sort of youth groupy games in my life, and from time to time there'll be a game that involves mattresses. You'll lay a mattress on the grass, someone will lay on top of it, you'll get a bunch of people to drag the mattress and the person around. And let me tell you what, that's heavy. People are, you're running all around the grass and your arms are tired. Can you imagine carrying a person across an entire city? It's just four people, you know, I can't run along. The whole time they're going, people are walking past them, always going the same direction that they're going. Sometimes people are sprinting past them. They're like, man, we better hurry up. They're dragging them. You got to rest, man. My arms are tired. All right, let's keep going. They're determined. These are determined friends. They clearly seem to have some kind of love or affection for this person because why else would they be doing this? And they finally get to the house and they see what's going on. And there are so many people. You ever get to a movie late that's crowded and you walk in and you're looking at the theater and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done? There's just no, there's nowhere, there's nowhere. You're lo- there's just, where are we going to go? And I can just imagine them standing in the street. They've dragged their friend this whole way. Like, what are we going to do? Fortunately, they're determined. And so one of them has an idea, I suppose. Let's go onto the roof. Most houses had roof access connected to them. If it was a nice house, there might have been a stairwell, but in all likelihood, it was just a ladder, a ladder that went up. And I don't know, maybe maybe you had this experience this weekend. Thanksgiving is over, and you think, let's decorate for Christmas. And so you get on a ladder, and you get into the rafters of your garage, your attic or something, and you're, you know, moving boxes all around. You ever get to that, you know, that heavy box that has the ceramic nativity set in it or something like that, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is heavy, and you're kind of like awkwardly like stepping down a ladder? Imagine that except with a human body of a grown adult. How exactly do you navigate a person up a ladder and onto a roof? These guys were determined. We're doing this. So we've got two of them up and two of them, they shove them up and they pull them up and they're all up there and now they're on the roof. And the way houses worked at the time, they would have had a flat roof, not really like the, the sort of pitch roofs that we have now, but they would have had a few beams going, you know, one way and a lot of beams going the other way. And then what actually keeps the water and, water and the weather out is they would pack down mud and clay and straw and twigs and they would get like this nasty looking mixture and just smush it all down there. And that's what would keep the water out. What was interesting about roofs is that they weren't permanent. Not the permanent things that they are today that you have to replace every, I don't even know, 15 years, 30 years. I don't own a home. Some of you know the answer to this question. But they would have to they would have to redo the roof every single year before the rainy season. And so 
It's a big deal that they're ripping the roof off, but not the big deal that it would be today. I secretly kind of want this to happen in a sermon sometime. If you're inspired during third service to come back with a ladder and a sledgehammer, I won't be mad if you just want to bust through the roof at any point. Um, someone else might be, I don't know. But, um, but it sounds like a fun experience. But, so this was, this was a big deal, but not, not quite like breaking your roof up. But they climb up, they get the guy up, they break the roof down. Uh, maybe they had some ropes, they lowered him down. Maybe they just held on to his arms and sort of plopped him down there. But can you imagine being Jesus at this point? There was something, there's part of this as I was studying this week that I had never considered before. It had never occurred to me that perhaps at this moment, Jesus was tempted to be irritated. And that had never occurred to me before. You just imagine, he's, he's trying not to get too distracted. He's trying to control the extent to which his fame has spread. He's determined to preach the word. All these people showed up uninvited, but he takes it in stride and preaches this sermon anyway. And I don't know, maybe he's getting right to the climactic point of the sermon, and all of a sudden he's getting hit on the face with dust and debris and dirt and wood and twigs, and all of a sudden there's a person coming down out of the roof, and I can just imagine Jesus like, seriously, guys? Like, this, this is what you've decided to do? I get annoyed very easily when things that are unexpected happen. Maybe you feel the same way. But not our Savior. There's no sense of any irritation. Praise God that Jesus was perfect in every respect. Interrupt the sermon? It's no problem. And they lay him at his feet, and Jesus looks at him. There's a paralyzed man, so he wouldn't have been able to work, couldn't walk. He likely would have had no friends, very few people who cared about him other than these four, these four men who have shown up. In that culture, sort of that serious kind of sickness was very much correlated with sinfulness. If you were paralyzed, it must be because you are a sinful person. God wouldn't punish a righteous man. God wouldn't make this happen to a righteous man. And so it must be because of your own sinfulness or perhaps because of the sinfulness of your parents. And so he would have been looked down upon. He would have had essentially nothing in life. And Jesus looks at him, takes in all of his needs, and he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. If I were one of those four friends, dragged this guy across the city, up a roof, down to the ground, and I'm sitting there, you know, with my head perched over the side, watching the scene unfold, and finally, we have finally got him to Jesus, and Jesus can finally do what Jesus does, and he'll be made well, and your sins are forgiven. Imagine the disappointment. Jesus, do you see him? He can't walk. Can you do something useful, please? 
I would have been tempted to have that attitude. These guys, we don't know exactly what their attitude was. And in fact, because sinfulness and sickness had the correlation that they did, maybe they were happy with this result. If his sins are forgiven, then perhaps eventually he'll be healed. Or maybe even right now, I don't know. We don't, we don't really find out, but it appears that this story would have concluded at this point. Jesus gave him what he needed. They didn't have a response, and that was it. Except this is the first account in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus' problems with the religious authorities. Really, it was the religious authorities' problems with Jesus. So verses 6 and 7 bring us to chapter 3 of our story, the first of many questions. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I don't know if I'm reading this into the text because, because I know that this is their first encounter, but I can't help but feel like there's a little bit more honesty in the question than there normally is with the religious authorities who question Jesus. Later we know they're going to be intentionally trying to trap him in blasphemy. They're going to intentionally try to feed him questions that will confuse him or mess him up so that they can either prove him wrong or eventually so that they can, so that they can kill him for his blasphemy. This, though, they seem to be almost a little bit caught off guard. Why does he speak like that? This is blasphemy. It just, to me, it sounds like the first encounter. But again, it's possible I'm reading that into it. Regardless, their problem, I mean, in a general sense, they're right. For a man to try and forgive someone's sins was blasphemy. That's the domain of God alone and no one else. Their problem was it never occurred to them that perhaps Jesus is more than just a man. And so they question. And that brings us to our final chapter, the climactic finish, verses 8 through 12, I've called final authority. And immediately Jesus perceives in his spirit that they question within themselves. Said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Jesus immediately perceives that they're having these questions, and he says, look, I'm, I'm going to answer this right now. We're going to solve this problem immediately. Which is easier to say, sins are forgiven, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, I think we can all agree that both of those, for humans, are hard to do. Do you understand? Right? Like, I, I have, I mean, I've never tried to forgive someone's sins, but my guess is I would have a hard time doing it. Same thing with miraculously healing someone who can't walk. Like, get on up, man. Like, it's probably not going to work. So they're both very difficult to do for any person. Not for God, but for a person. But Jesus is asking this question in such a way, he's asking a rhetorical question. The answer for any rhetorical question is supposed to be obvious, but this is, this is kind of worded strangely, and so I want to make sure that you understand. What he's saying is that while they're both hard to do, 
one of them is much easier to say. If I say to you, your sins are forgiven, how are you going to know if it worked? I'll just promise you that it has. Oh yes, sins are forgiven. You don't have to worry about it. It's over. And there's, there's no way to test. But if I tell you, pick up your bed and go home, and you can't walk, you are either healed or you're not. And we will immediately be able to tell. And so this is, this is Jesus' line of reasoning. I'm going to tell you to do the thing that's hard. Rise, take up your bed and go home. That way you can know that when I already said your sins are forgiven, that's the easy thing. Now you'll know that I can do that too. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what he says. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God. He shows them, I'm going to prove that I can forgive sins because this man is healed. And he uses this phrase that I love so much, he tells them, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. This has become my very favorite title for God, for Christ, Son of Man. I think it's a fascinating term. It comes from the Old Testament. It's used many, many times, the phrase sort of as a title, as it were, in the Old Testament. It's used most often of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is called the Son of Man like 90 times, some very, very high amount of times. Do you want to know what it means? It's very interesting. Get ready for it. It means a man, a person. It's very interesting, don't you think? It is definitely talking about someone who is a human being. But what makes this interesting is when we get to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is one of the more confusing books in the Old Testament. But this little prophetic portion in the middle of it seems to be very clear. And I'm just going to read it for you. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is what makes Son of Man interesting, is because if it weren't for this, we might have just thought, like, I was talking about a man, it's a man, son of man, it's a man. But here, the Son of Man is this heavenly figure. This Son of Man is given by God dominion and glory and a kingdom and his kingdom is an everlasting dominion and so who who can god glorify other than himself the answer is no one and yet here we see god glorifying someone who is eternal like god the answer is no one except we see here someone who has an everlasting dominion who would god give rulership and ownership of everything to other than himself the answer is no one and yet we see it right here he's given it to someone and this is talking about christ 
And so when you see the phrase Son of Man, what makes it exciting is it's this phrase that has two meanings at the exact same time. It is definitely talking about Jesus' humanity, but in a very real sense... And in fact, I I think the primary meaning of Son of Man as a title for God is a reference to Jesus' deity. It's both at the same time. And this is the phrase that that Jesus uses about himself more than any other phrase. I think it's 84 times Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And in all the Gospels, in all the New Testament, not a single person other than Jesus refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. It's a title that he claimed for himself. And what's another thing that's interesting about it is I think the reason he chose it is because while it was an obvious messianic title, it wasn't one that really had any cultural baggage attached attached to it. It wasn't a messianic title that was widely used. And so no one had any preconceived notions about exactly what the Son of Man would be like or what his ministry would be like. And so when you see the phrase, Son of Man, in the Bible, I want your ears to perk up. Because what Jesus is saying is he is trying to give a description of himself, of his ministry, that most people largely wouldn't have understood. He was trying to reveal new information about himself. More often than not, the vast majority of the references to the Son of Man make reference to one of two things. They either make reference to his suffering and death or they make reference to the fact that he is coming again in glory. And that is what makes it a beautiful term, I think, is it is both of those things. But he wants to give it even more meaning. And here he uses the term so that you will know that the Son of Man, that part of my ministry for the Messiah is to forgive like only God can forgive. Because as it turns out, Jesus Christ was the very Son of God and had all the authority of the Father to forgive sins. And that's why this whole account happens. So that you would know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And I I think that's exactly what Christ would have us know about Him now. That he has authority to forgive sins. There are, there are a lot of problems in the world. A lot of sickness, death, hatred. A lot of it. But there is, there is one universal illness that, that extends everywhere and to everything. It's infected your children. It's ruined marriages. messed up your pets, dogs and bunnies, no joke. Everything has been infected by sin. I read a book recently that was talking about, uh, it was a science book that was talking about the nature of the universe. And the best evidence is that the universe is expanding. Isn't that weird? That God created a universe that's getting bigger. And I can't help, when you're talking about sin has infected the entire universe, the universe is even getting bigger. And so sin's reach just continues to extend. It blows my mind. The extent to which sin has infected everything. 
Jesus saw this man who would have been a social outcast, who would have had no money, who would have had nothing, who couldn't walk. And he saw him and he looked at him and he said, I know what you need. I know what what you need more than anything else. And it's for your sins to be forgiven. Jesus, Jesus cared about his physical ailment too. As should we, we should care about the physical problems of others. And we should seek to solve those things. But Jesus was primarily concerned with his sinful state and his need to be forgiven. I have three things that I want you to know about forgiveness. The first is, I think, the most obvious thing from the text is that forgiveness is your greatest need. More than anything else, I don't care what your problem is, I don't care how bad your life is. I don't care how difficult your relationships are. I don't, know, I don't care how much self-loathing and self-hatred you have. No matter what it is, what you need more than anything else is to be forgiven by the blood of Christ. That's why He came. So that you would know that not only does He have the authority to forgive sins, but He actually accomplished that on the cross for everyone who believes in Him. And this passage even talks about the importance of faith. Jesus sees the faith of these four men. It would be very tempting to think, well, I just got to live a life like these guys who were willing to go out of their way, who were willing to work really hard, who were willing to do something good for something else. And it would be tempting to think like that, that I need to be good like them. I need to act the right way and help others and just be a selfless person. And that's what will please God. But that is not what caused Jesus to forgive anyone. He saw their faith. He saw that they believed in Him, that they trusted in Him, that, that they knew that nothing else could possibly help their friend. And it's on the basis of their faith that Jesus healed him. And you need that kind of forgiveness. If you have never been forgiven for your sins, the Bible is very clear how sinful everyone is. And you have have offended a holy God, someone who is infinitely holy. And your, your punishment, the punishment that you deserve, is infinite as well. And yet forgiveness is offered through faith in Jesus Christ. And you need to be forgiven. God is calling you, and by the power of God's Spirit, I am calling you today to turn away from your sin and to trust in Christ as your Savior. Today is the day to do it. Be forgiven through Christ. Second thing I I want you to know about forgiveness. For those of you who have already been forgiven... Which I assume is most of the room. This is church. I want you, I want you to remember your forgiveness. All the time, I think people forget what they have in Jesus Christ. And they live lives of guilt and shame. They live lives that are caught up in hatred and sin. And they forget what God has done for them. I have mentioned this before. I have some lists of verses in the front of my Bible. I just write them down. I don't have as many lists as I was like. But my favorite list 
I just call it personal identity. This is, this is what I am in Christ. And I just have some different verses there. Galatians 5.1, Ephesians 2.4-7, Colossians 1, Romans 8.1. So that way when I'm caught up with self-centeredness, when the only thing I could think about is my sin and how bad I am and just how terrible of a person and the worst things that I've done, I can remember Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. I can remember Colossians 1 that says, through the, through the blood of Christ, through his death on the cross, you have been presented before him holy and blameless and above reproach. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. All of these things are true about you. And I want you to remember your forgiveness and live a life of thankfulness for what God has done for you. You didn't deserve it. And he did it for you anyway. Thanksgiving holiday was this last weekend. You probably did a lot of different things. Eat some food, watch some football, hang out with family. I hope you saw the new Star Wars trailer. It was awesome. But you are supposed to spend some time. It's the idea of the holiday to remember what you're thankful for. To remember what Christ has given you. And what better thing to remember and be thankful for than the forgiveness that has been offered to you through Christ Jesus. You didn't deserve it and you didn't earn it, but God was gracious toward you. Remember that. Be thankful. Last thing I want to say about forgiveness, I want you to remember to forgive one another. It's a very important thing to remember as Christians. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so must you forgive. The way in which God forgives you That's how you are supposed to forgive others. Unconditionally. Without reservation. No matter how bad a sin it was, you are called to forgive others. And I have seen all kinds of lives, I don't know what to say, ruined because of of an unwillingness to forgive someone else. People get so caught up with being right. I cannot forgive them. I will not forgive them for what they did to me. Praise God that he doesn't treat you that way. Praise God that there is forgiveness in Christ and there, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, There should be forgiveness like that from you. And so you need to pray. You need to pray and ask that God would help you forgive like he has forgiven you because that is very difficult, especially if someone has done something to you that is very hurtful. But you offended an infinitely holy God. 
And he, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The passage wants to remind you that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. You need forgiveness more than you need anything else. You need to remember your forgiveness if you already trust in Christ as a Savior. And you need to forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the forgiveness that you've given us in Christ. I pray for anyone who, who does not trust in you through faith. I pray that they would be convicted of that this morning, that your spirit would work in their heart and that you would call them to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and that they would, they would be saved this morning, God. I pray for all of us that we would forgive like you forgive through the power of your spirit that you would enable us to do that, and that we would remember our forgiveness and live lives of thankfulness. We pray this all in your name. Amen.